we are here for one of our summer podcasts with Al Varney, who is a mentor, friend of mine, and uh, has played a critical role in, over the last few years with uh, some mentorship for me. And I was excited to have him join us because as much as I've benefited from the mentorship, I thought, what better way than have him uh, speak more broadly to our audience uh, and actually ask a little bit about some of the things that uh, Al has experienced, uh, share some of that knowledge in a platform that reaches more people. So Al, um, I know the, I've had the opportunity to, to spend a lot of time and get to know you very well, but for the benefit of our audience, who is Al Varney? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Gary, first of all, thanks for the invite. And uh, let's start with what I'm not. Uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not involved in the legal industry at all. So hopefully there'll be no buyer's remorse for inviting me to firing in all syllables. Uh, you know me pretty well, so feel free to rebut anything I say. Um, but I guess I'm a Canadian businessman. I spent 33 years in uh, a career at a global technology company, Xerox. And for the last 15 years of that corporate career, I held uh, senior positions in Canada, the US, Europe, uh, running different sorts of operations. And for the last four years, I've been doing a series of consulting roles, different types of consulting roles with companies from smaller founder-led organizations right up to some of the larger global technology companies and consulting companies. Uh, I live here in Toronto with my wife, Teresa. Uh, I love Toronto. I'm trying to experience it fully. And unless the world tilts on its axis, I don't plan on moving uh, ever again. So that's, a, that's who I, everybody's talking to. Well, Al, uh, I'm going to just divert a little bit from our normal course of questions because uh, of your love for Toronto. And I've asked you this in the past because you've lived in Dallas, you've lived in London, you've lived in Hamilton, you've lived in Windsor, Ontario. New York um, State. Yep. New York State, uh, th there's been a few places. And when I asked you what was the best city to live in, you said Toronto, right here. Now, why would Toronto be better than, say, Dallas, London, or other places in Europe or elsewhere? Well, you know, I always get asked the question, given the travel, like when I was in Europe, I was, you know, traveling pretty extensively throughout Europe, and people always ask me, you know, what's your favorite country? And I go, to visit or to live in? And when they say to live in, I always go Toronto just because uh, I'm not Canadian by birth, uh, but I'm a Canadian as an adult, uh, became a Canadian as an adult. And uh, I think this is a fantastic city, just quality of life uh, that we have, uh, sports, entertainment, dining, safety, cost. I mean, I used to think I lived in an expensive city in Toronto until I moved to London. Uh, so I think just the whole package, uh, I, I think we've got a pretty special place here. And I agree with you, Al. I thought uh, it's good for the audience to to hear it because I meet a lot of people living in Toronto that are like, oh, I wish I lived somewhere else. I wish I lived somewhere warmer and I, I wish I was uh, in Europe. And I always say, you know what? Grass is always greener on the other side. But what better way than to ask somebody that <laughs> with a good amount of credibility that has spent a fair bit of time in these places? Well, as of you. So I think we both feel that way. So I'll, um, I'll go back to a little bit about who Al Varney is. Uh, growing up, who was uh, who had the biggest influence on you uh, as in, in your character forming and in, in your evolution? 
who would you say hey, yeah. was the uh, you know, probably a pretty typical answer to that question, Gary. I think it's probably my parents, specifically my father. You know, he was British, ex-military, spent a lot of time in security, had a little bit of gypsy in his blood. So I and my siblings grew up in Britain, in Ghana, in Africa, in Malaysia, in Hong Kong, in Canada. Uh, but he had a lot of influence on me. He's been dead you know, 25 years, but uh, he was tough. He was smart. He was analytical. He was highly ethical. But honestly, the the biggest impact on me growing up probably was the physical moves that we made because growing up, and you might relate to this a little bit, but growing up, you know, I always had the wrong accent. I always listened to the wrong music. I always played the wrong sport. Uh, and so I had to adapt as I moved around. And it, that develops uh, resilience. And, uh, you know, I really believe that having to deal with conflict, challenging situations, you know, falling and skinning your knees a few times is uh, the way to build up resilience, which is really important. And that stood well by me in the business world is that resilience. And in fact, one of I guess this is a bit self-serving, but one of the favorite compliments that I ever received was from a guy by the name of Kevin Warren, uh, who I worked for and who moved me around a few times. And he said, uh, Al grows well wherever planted. And, you know, that's because of the experience that I had growing up. And Al, the, the, I will pivot a little bit just uh, so we talked a bit about growing up, but in your career, uh, and I know you mentioned Kevin, but who would you say has had a, a big impact on your career or you've learned a lot from um, whether somebody that was somebody you knew well or that you sort of followed as a thought leader? Who would you say? Uh, and it could be more than one as well. Yeah, it probably is more than one, Gary. I don't think I don't think I never did have a specific mentor uh, that I followed or that I always went to. But what I was able to do is I worked in an organization that had terrific leaders. And because I was able to watch them, watch how they operate, I really was able to copy the best traits or try and emulate the best traits in all of them. And so, you know, just a variety of leaders that I worked for and that I worked with, I picked things up from them. I mean, one of my early bosses, Greg Jones, was always recruiting 100% of the time. He was always top grading his talent. And so I saw that and I saw the value of it. And I've tried to emulate that. One of the first CEOs that I got the opportunity to work closely with was uh, a very, very uh, skilled uh, executive by the name of Emma Kehi. And just watching her, I was able to see when she talked to different groups, she always talked at the right level for the group she was addressing whether it was a bunch of service technicians or a bunch of financial analysts, she would talk at the right level and she would talk about what they cared about, not the corporate speak that they didn't really, weren't really bothered with. So I, I always took that lesson to heart and tried to emulate that. Um, you know, a terrific leader that I worked for a few times by the name of Kevin Warren. He's actually the CMO at UPS now. Uh, I watched him be a lot bolder in decision-making uh, than most of the executives. And, you know, I realized that you can be more aggressive. And most of the time when we think we're being aggressive in our decision-making, we're really not. Like we think we are, it feels like it at the time, but 
in the rearview mirror, you realize that you're just not as aggressive. And then at the risk of killing it, you know, I, I worked for a very talented executive, Jeff Jacobson, and I watched him navigate the company through some pretty choppy waters. And I realized watching him that he was highly communicative and always left people feeling there was a firm hand on the rudder. And I think that let them get through the change. So a really long-winded answer just to say, I don't think it's about a mentor for me. It's just been about what I've seen other people do exceptionally well that I've tried my best to copy. Well, and, and I think there are some important lessons uh, built in now. So uh, just starting from, from uh, the first example alone, always be recruiting for any good leader. You always need good talent. And our talent is always evolving with the organization. So the talent that we need today may look a little different tomorrow. So we always have to look for it. Uh, connect with the various levels within the organization. The bigger the organization, uh, the better. Uh, and the more important it is to connect at the various levels of the individuals you're speaking with. Uh, you want to be bold in the decision-making because indecision can be paralyzing to an organization. And if I were to paraphrase the, the last one is, as you navigate through changes, instill confidence in the team around you so they don't feel like they're about to go in a sinking ship. So. No, you were really listening. That was a good summary. <laughs> well, and, and uh, distilling for the audience and uh, ideally put some captions with the, with the podcast to say, okay, let's, let's get some lessons. But really, if you think about it in, in leadership, these are distilled lessons that are so key to just keep in the back of your mind because we're overwhelmed with information. Uh, I'm going back to your childhood one last time, Al. Uh, we seldom end up being what we thought we were going to be as kids. When growing up, what did you think uh, you wanted to be? Uh, did you, was there something you can think of that you were like, I really wanted to be this? You know, there wasn't, Gary. And honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to be. Uh, and until university, I didn't really know who I was as a human being. I mean, I always worked hard. I knew that I did okay in school, but you know, I didn't uh, do terrifically. I went to McMaster and graduated in chemistry. I actually can't remember why I went into chemistry. Uh, it just was something to do at the time. But I knew that I wasn't going to follow a chemistry path. I wasn't going to take a PhD. And if I didn't do something different, I would end up in quality control in a lab somewhere, which wasn't going to work for me. And I was really fortunate in that I, I got a job while I was in university, a 100% commission job, selling Christmas ornaments. Uh, selling Christmas ornaments from a Vancouver wholesaler to retail stores in Canada. So in Ontario, Bowerings, Burks, Panhandlers, if you recognize any of those names, uh, and small retail stores. And um, I was able to do this while I was at university, and I found that I was really good at it. I understood how to qualify customers. I understood how to present offers. I learned how to run a territory. And frankly, I was just really fortunate in that I was making a lot of money while I was at university uh, and, uh, you know, graduated in a different position than a lot of my friends. But that sort of set me on the course. And so coming out of school, I applied to, you know, the big ones where sales was key, Xerox, IBM, Procter & Gamble. P&G wouldn't give me an interview. Uh, I think I was on interview number six with IBM when Xerox offered me the job. Uh, and that set me on the course of having just a terrific, really rewarding career. Uh, I thought I'd go do it for a couple of years uh, and then go out on my own. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I ended up working for them for 33 years. 
Well, that's uh, these days more and more rare as time goes on now to see somebody have an entire career within the same organization. So that's admir admirable in its own. Uh, but it was a different time. I don't think that happens as much uh, today as it did back uh, when I was coming through the corporate ranks. Well, uh, I, you know, the if I can, and again, I'm pivoting a lot uh, during this, but as long as it adds value to the audience, why do you think uh, that that doesn't happen as much? I think the value proposition's changed. Uh, I think that loyalty on both sides has been altered over the years. Um, I mean, it was always that way. I mean, corporations are corporate monsters. I mean, the day they think they can make a dollar more uh, without you than with you, they do and should make change. Uh, but there's just, there's less guarantees, I think. And, and I also think that, that, you know, people getting into the business world these days, they're looking for different experiences. They're much more willing to move around and have those different experiences. Um, and I think it's healthy. I don't think it's, I don't think it's either good or bad. I think it, it's healthy as well. I think you can move around too much. Uh, and I do see that sometimes when I'm doing interviews and I look at somebody and their LinkedIn's a series of 12 and 18 month experiences. You don't want that, but nobody's expecting somebody to work for a company for 15 years anymore. Right. And, and I think to your point, there's some value where you learn from different organizations because you can bring that to the, to the next place. As long as you've had enough tenure to actually learn versus, you know, by the time you got traction, you moved on to the next job. So I can completely appreciate that importance. And, and I don't know if this is old school, but, you know, if you've done less than 18 months, you probably didn't tick the box. You know, you kind of got to go through a cycle uh, in most roles to really understand them. No, I, I don't. I don't think it's old school. But then again, I feel like I, I have become the old school these days. <laughs> uh, uh, what is your favorite hobby? Uh, and we, we talk a lot about work uh, in this context and certainly for the purpose of the podcast, but hobby, fun stuff that you like to do. I know you love music, but amongst other things. Well, this is probably an area where I fall a little short. I, I don't have a lot of hobbies, Gary. Um, you know, I've always enjoyed the work that I've done. I, I've never sort of viewed it as a negative. And so I tend to probably lean into that a little bit more. I do focus on fitness. As you mentioned, I do like live music, uh, which Toronto's, you know, got a pretty good opportunity to see that at all different sort of size venues. I like theater. I like travel. Uh, Teresa and I are off to Croatia in a couple of weeks, one of the few European countries we haven't been to. Um, and, you know, something that's become more and more important to me is just good time with friends. You know, those are sort of where I like to spend my time. And it's, you don't realize uh, how important that is until years go by and you're like, I haven't seen these people I really like in X time. And, uh, that seems to grow. So. I was falling into that and I make much more of an effort these days. Uh, I can attest to it. You, you really do. Uh, so uh, on, on that, uh, just speaking of your career, and I know we, we spoke about uh, the career at Xerox being uh, lengthy and, and that had, but at the same time rewarding and with many experiences within it. Talk us a little bit about once you joined Xerox, uh, sort of the evolution within uh, Xerox and sort of some of the more pivotal moments, how you felt about it and how that made you the person you are today. Hmm. Okay. Uh, quite a bit there. 
Uh, listen, no, nobody in your audience will be particularly interested in the steps in my journey. So I'll, I'll kind of distill it to the Coles notes, but I came through the sales ranks of the organization. So all of sort of sales specialist management roles to general management. And then I got the opportunity to run operations of different size. I did uh, different roles, which gave me different competencies. Like I was the VP of marketing and strategy. And so I learned uh, different subject matter expertise there. And then I had the opportunity to do a series of fairly senior uh, assignments. And some of the highlights would be, you know, although it wasn't the largest role I had, you know, running my home country of Xerox Canada uh, was very rewarding and, you know, good for my ego. Uh, it was about a billion dollar business uh, at the time, but, you know, it's just, it was the organization that I'd grown up in. So that was probably the biggest highlight. Early in my career, I had the opportunity of running the 10 southern U.S. states for Xerox, you know, all the really cool ones like Alabama and Tennessee and Mississippi and Arizona and New Mexico. Um, that was a little sarcasm there. Uh, my first presidential role, I ran a very large channels business, almost a couple billion dollars. And my last corporate gig was running most of Western Europe for the organization. Um, but a couple of the key sort of decisions or key experiences that sort of shaped that one was just an early decision that I made, which was the decision that I was willing to relocate. Uh, and when you are willing to relocate, it just opens up a much wider aperture of opportunities that you can pursue. You got to offer something. They don't relocate people that they don't think are going to add value. But uh, by saying that I was willing to go and do different roles in different places, it got me considered for a lot of roles that if I just said, no, I'm going to live in Toronto, uh, wouldn't have happened. So it's great if you can relocate. It's actually okay not to be mobile uh, and to just say, you know, no, I'm, you know, I'm willing to commute or do business travel, but I'm going to live here. There's not as many opportunities where people get themselves into problems is when they say they're mobile and then they're not. That's when uh, they run into trouble. Uh, but I was very fortunate to have uh, a wife that was open to the adventures, you know, the good, the challenging times that come uh, with that. But just being mobile really opened up a lot of opportunity for me. And, uh, and I'm really pleased with that. It, probably the other thing that I'd, I'd suggest is I showed relatively early in my career the ability to turn around operations that weren't performing as well to sort of change the outcomes. And so the company started to use me a little bit as an internal turnaround resource. And just organically, just having gone through the experience a number of times, I sort of organically built a framework on how I approached operations that weren't working well, you know, a framework that I used. And whether it was in different geographies, different channels, direct, uh, partner-led, whether it was different languages, the model just always seemed to work. Uh, and it, it wasn't rocket science. Like it's one of those ones that's, uh, uh, it's simple, but it's not easy if you know that expression. So those were probably a couple things that really got my, my career going. So Al, I have two follow-up questions and uh, I think you would have expected that I would <laughs> on that. Uh, so, what made you the turnaround guy? Uh, you know, the process obviously was part of it, but the, uh, the, the, 
what approach did you have that give you the, the resilience and the confidence to turn uh, things around, regardless of, of which situation it was? Well, one was just a willingness to act. I mean, you know, again, when they relocate somebody into an operation, they don't normally do that so that you can maintain the status quo. They're bringing somebody in to make changes. And you and I have actually talked about the need to have crucial conversations and address issues head on and have a realistic view of what the world is. Um, so I, I'd say that's probably it. But, the, you know, the framework really is about, you know, starting with assessing talent. Do you have the right talent? I mean, starting really with the leaders. You know how important I think leadership is. Uh, and, you know, you'd have to go in and look at the leaders and go, you know, are they intelligent enough to do the role? Do they have the accountability necessary? Like, are they looking in the mirror? Do they have followership? Are they driving good results? Or do they have a track record of some results? You assess the talent and make change where necessary. Then you have to look at the culture and go, is this really a performance culture? Like, is there, are they transparent with the results and how they're doing? Do they uh, address difficult topics? Do the audio and the visual align between what they say is important and how they're acting as being important? Is the value proposition understood and the market they serve? Like if you ask 10 people, what value do we bring and who are we taking it to? Do you get one answer or do you get 10 different answers? Uh, and then lastly is just understanding what are the key KPIs, the key process indicators that really move the needle? Do we know what they are and are we managing those? Uh, and there can't be more than five of them, and hopefully it's more like three of them. And that's sort of the framework that I took that, that enabled those turnarounds. No, and I think that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it, it also, it would apply to any organization and any business, regardless what industry they're in. They could be service, they could be product, et cetera. For sure. Well, you, you know what I'm doing now it has nothing to do with my background and yet the same principles seem to be yielding. So I think you're absolutely right. It's agnostic of uh, whatever industry you're in. Uh, I have a specific question around growing up in sales and how that served you in leadership. So uh, I've often been a believer that growing up in sales is really important for, for senior leadership because if that's almost any business is so dependent on sales, but especially in the B2B world uh, where it's a different approach than B2C where it's more a, a different marketing approach more than traditional sales. Um, how, how do you think that affected your course within the executive team and, and how did it affect the, the thinking uh, that you approached leadership uh, having grown up in sales? Well, let me start just by saying sales is only one facet of the business. And so, uh, you know, if you have somebody that's come up just through that silo, they do have a narrow view of the business. So it is important that people get a broad idea of how a company really runs, where are the products coming from, you know, what's the go to market, how's, you know, where's the money, like, where's the profit. So it is important that people get more than just a sales background. But sales is really important to most organizations. And although I lost the title of being in sales, you know, like 20 years into my career, I kept the title internally of being in sales because as you know, whether you're the CEO of a company 
uh, you're still one of the key salespeople that's there. So I think a number of things. One is just having done so many of the jobs, you understand the jobs. You understand how the business really runs. If you've come in from the ground and you've seen how it's marketed and you're engaged with clients, you actually talk to the people that are using your products or your services, uh, that's really important. And you tend to understand the, uh, the different levers that can be pulled in that area. And Al, if, because, uh, you know, all the research shows leaders could be of different personalities, different uh, characters. Um, if one of them didn't have any sales experience at, at all, what recommendations would you have for them to, if they are in senior leadership, whether CEO uh, or, or in a similar role? What recommendations would you have for them for exposure to sales? Um, I think, first of all, most people, by the time they get to the CEO role, they will have already done this. It's unlikely that they've gotten to the CEO role and then going and saying, let me see how we actually sell our products. But I just say, get exposure to it. I mean, there are a few diseases of senior people, uh, if that term's okay. Uh, one of them is just being too removed. Uh, not really understanding what's going on in the field. And, you know, it's very easy uh, in larger organizations to get to the point where it's like, when's the last time you talked to a client? And, you know, I'd say that in combination with, as you get to senior levels, you get a very filtered view of reality from the people that report to you. You don't actually know what's going on. You're hearing a filtered version of a filtered version of what's going on. And it's by going and having those experiences that you really find out uh, uh, what's happening you know, with your clients and uh, where you actually make your money. Um, I'm pivoting a little bit to, to your personal growth. Um, the, and this is more current state, but, but we can also speak traditionally. What strategies do you employ to foster, uh, sorry, the, to, I'm gonna to, to stay motivated and to grow as a leader. So essentially, the growth never ends, uh, regardless uh, regardless of what stage you are of your career. Uh, how do you do it currently, other than listening to a lot of podcasts? Uh-huh, uh-huh, which I do. Um, I'll break it into the two parts. So the first is, what do you do to stay motivated? Um, this will be probably an unsatisfactory answer, but I've never really had motivation issues. I've really enjoyed all of the roles that I've taken on. It doesn't mean I loved every day, but I've always been motivated by what I've been put in place to do. Um, and so I've never had those. I have had friends and people that I've coached that have gone through these dips. I haven't experienced that. But if I was being truly transparent, Gary, one of the things that has actually motivated me for a large part of my career is a fear of failure. And when I commit, like when I say I'm going to do something or I will do something, I feel this huge sort of internal pressure to deliver. And so it's not been a paralyzing fear, but it's always been a motivation for me is the feeling that I committed. I said I would do something and now I've got to go and deliver it. So there you go. You didn't realize this was going to turn into a therapy session for me. Um, <laughs> On the, uh, on the growing, uh, I would say it's about trying new things. 
And that's never been truer than the last few years in my consulting roles. I've only been accepting opportunities that interest me and excite me. And they tend to be the things that I actually don't know how to do. Uh, I don't know how to do it at first and I've got to go learn it. And that is when growth takes, takes place. Growth takes place when you're put into a situation that you don't understand or you don't know, or you got to go take some chances. I think that's when we grow as individuals. Absolutely. I think by every definition. Um, and now, so I, I will uh, probe a little bit more just uh, from, from, cause I think these are all very important. Um, the, when, when you think of, uh, you know, we talked about uh, not wanting to fail, et cetera. Those are all important. And, and as we grow, not that we never fail, it's just that we're certainly not wanting to do it repeatedly is, is, is key. It's not a good recipe. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with you, you're very disciplined. And I think leadership requires discipline and uh it, was that something that was inherent or was that something that you developed uh, a, a bit more with time? So uh, I think in my case, I think it was pretty inherent. Uh, I think I've always been a, a fairly disciplined individual. I mentioned that I was brought up by an ex-military uh, father. And so that was sort of always expected. But I do believe discipline can be learned and I do believe discipline can be built in. And I actually believe it's critical because, you know, one of my beliefs is that all organizations take the shape of their leaders. I mean, what's important to the leadership funnels down and that is both good and bad. Uh, you know, if the leader is always late, uh, doesn't live up to commitments, audio and visual doesn't align. That shapes an organization as well. And so I think that for leaders, you know, I'm not saying it has to be military-like discipline, but a level of consistency and discipline, I think, is really critical for an organization to run well. I don't know. Do you agree? Well, one of the largest pieces of research done around people that were successful, where they were looking for the common denominator, they said, honestly, the only common denominator, they showed up every day and did it regardless of whether how they felt and what it was and discipline, consistency, and we hear it all the time, uh, process is sometimes more important than results because the good process will, will lead to results eventually versus sometimes results that you get lucky with aren't always a good indication of process. I think that's actually a Woody Allen quote, which is 80% of success in life is showing up. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> well, and there's, there's also a book uh, on, in the tech world that was pretty popular maybe about 20 years ago. And, a lot has changed in the tech world uh, since then, maybe 15. And it was called Once You're Lucky, Twice You're Good. And it was about, uh, you know, you had the occasional dot-com or the occasional tech company that they did well and they sold. And it's like, okay, good for you. You're a founder that you, you, that you managed to do that. And not to take away from it, but the ones that were able to repeat it more than once, it's like, okay, now you're actually good. It wasn't just luck uh, that could have happened in one instance. Because, you know, you had certain tech companies that could have success in short order within two, three years if you were in the right place at the right time. And it really, a lot of the elements around it were around the consistency and, and the, the resilience and having a vision, executing with different teams in a different business. And the, the, I thought that was very worthwhile. 
Yeah, I haven't read the book, but it totally makes sense. I mean, you don't get lucky multiple times. Uh, at some point, you're bringing, uh, you're bringing a set of skills to the party that's paying off. Well, I had to uh, read a fair bit of, uh, around tech startups, uh, having gone into the, uh, an I AI guess. business as a non-tech guy. So the, I, I used all the help I could get, although this one I read many years before. So uh, I'll, I'm going to pivot to something else. So, you know, you were open to traveling and relocating for, for work and, and relocating more than traveling, but you had to do both. Um, you also have the, I can having seen this firsthand, you have a lot of good relationships, a lot of good friends that you've maintained uh, over time. So sometimes you have people resisting relocation or resisting sometimes even executive leadership positions worrying that they're not going to have time for anything else. How have you navigated that? So having a social life, maintaining some of these relationships while still having pretty important uh, executive roles? Um. You know, I don't know that it's been a lot of work navigating it, Gary. I, I mean, I think that, you know, relationships obviously take some effort from both sides. I mean, relationships don't have to be 50-50, but they can't be all one side. But they do take, you know, a certain level of nurturing. Like you have to reach out and, you know, it doesn't mean you got to go away for a weekend together. It can be simply just following up and seeing how somebody's doing. But, you know, I... I would say with all of the travel and so on, there's sort of two types of relationships you get involved in. There's relationships of convenience of which I've had lots of, Hey, we're now working in the same business. Let's go for dinner. Uh, but once that business relationship ends, the personal relationship ends. So that's what I consider relationships of convenience. And then there are deep friendships that form. And, you know, I've got a, deep friendship with people in Dallas, people in London, people in New York, uh, that I think I'll have till the day that I pass. Uh, you know, they're just people that I care about a lot and that I will make a point of reaching out to on a very, very regular basis. And I think the, uh, you've managed to do this despite the, the travel and despite the work commitments. One of the things you and I have always chatted about is you didn't see, and, and you actually discouraged people from seeing putting in a lot of hours as a badge of honor, uh, because that could be detrimental. Uh, the, what, what, is, what are your thoughts around that? Because obviously there's no, no way around working hard, but to be also cautious with being wise with our time. Yeah, no, I really do have some pretty strong feelings about this uh, because I see people where how many hours they're putting in, how hard they're working as a badge of honor. And it actually, in my case, almost has the opposite effect. It makes me think slightly less of them because it tells me that they can't prioritize. Uh, it tells me that they are... I'm just going to stop. The screens have all gone dark on me. Gary, are you actually there? I'm here and you're okay because we're recording locally. Okay. Um, shall I just start that question again? Uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, just so you know, I can no longer see anything other than myself. We'll just keep going. Uh, so yeah, I think that, you know, this is something I feel pretty strongly about. Uh, I think that people sometimes misinterpret uh, the difference between hours put in and effectiveness and outcomes. 
And honestly, some people wear it as a badge of honor, how many hours they put in the office, how hard they're working in, you know, how many projects they've got their fingers on. And I think a couple things. One is it tells me that they're probably not ready for a real leadership position. And it tells me that they're really not focused on outputs. I, th- as you said in the intro, I and mean, people have to work hard. That's, that's an expectation. And there are times when either a big project's coming down or things aren't going well, or we're in the middle of an acquisition when, hey, I'll put in a 65 hour week, but those have to be short sprints only when necessary. That's not life for me. Uh, and, you know, I think we've all got to sort of manage that. And I think a question that I've tried to counsel a couple people on is they ask themselves, what can I do? And right. the right question is actually, what should I be doing? What do I need to do? How can I focus on the things that will really move the needle? And, um, and it's a common mistake. And I think that the people that make that mistake will tend not to rise to the most senior positions because that'll weed them out. And Al, if the, I know sometimes you get caught up in the day-to-day and you don't take sufficient time to pause and say, what should I be doing? Uh, what Do you have any suggestions on how somebody could do that at any given time? Like is tips, here's how you should approach it. You know, I uh, actually started this at a very early age from a career standpoint. I was a sales manager. It was my very first sales manager assignment in St. Catharines, Ontario. And every month I would schedule three hours. And at that time, I would actually go over to the St. Catharines Library. And I would use it as a time to sit there and go, how are we doing? You know, how are we doing by employee? How are we doing by product line? Are the actions that we're taking the right ones? And it was the really push away from the table. I'd say email, but it wasn't email back then. Push away from what you were doing and actually go and think about, are we in the right direction? I mean, to use some hackneyed expressions, it's, you know, sort of sharpening the saw uh, as uh, the expression goes. But I think that sometimes people don't spend enough time pushing back from the table. You know, there's always going to be emails there, but you do need to step back and go, Am I going in the right direction? Is this the best use of my time? Are there changes that I should be making? Are there conversations that I should have that I haven't had? Uh, And I think that everybody needs to carve that time out. And it will not happen magically. The only way you get that time is you schedule that time, you calendar it, you treat it relatively religiously. Um, I'll actually just tell a very quick war story. We were, uh, I was working running a larger region at the time. We were doing exceptionally well. I had at my couple of managers coming with me to do these reviews. And at one point, one of the, the guys who I love that I still have a relationship with today said, oh, we're doing great. We don't need to do those meetings anymore. And I had to stop him and go, you understand that's why we're doing great, right? Is because <laughs> we take the time to do this. Uh, so it's you don't do it because you have to. You do it because it's the right way of ensuring you're spending your time uh, the most effectively. No, and I think it's to your point, calendarizing it, making it as part of your process that am I only doing things I should be doing versus anything possible to be doing? Great, great piece of advice. Um, one last question for you before we go to the final question, uh, to the, our final stage, which is the, what we call the rapid fire questions. You're doing okay. a role with Power On as the, as the president of Power On. 
tell me a little bit about this role uh, for, for, and, and about Power On to the audience that may not be familiar with it. Sure. Uh, so Power On, uh, which is where I am right now, this glamorous office you can see behind me, uh, is a subsidiary of Ontario Power Generation. So Ontario Power Generation, or OPG, is a Crown Corp utility here in Ontario. It produces more than 50% of Ontario's electricity through a variety of hydro and nuclear projects. And in Ontario, uh, we are blessed with a very clean electricity grid. I think it's about 94% of the electricity that we consume is clean, which is very, very high. So uh, Ken Hartwick and the board at Ontario Power Generation have this vision of electrifying life in one generation. And there's two components to that. One is they've got to generate and continue to grow the amount of power they're generating. But the other thing that they're doing is they're trying to help organizations in Canada convert to using more and more electricity. And so they've got a number of subsidiaries uh, aimed at doing that. So the IV charging network, if anybody has an electric vehicle and they're driving down the 401 and they stop in an en route, there's IV charging network, that's Ontario Power Generation. Power On is the subsidiary that I'm uh, leading right now. Uh, and it is aimed at helping organizations uh, transition to electrical. And we're focusing right now on fleets. So both commercial fleets and transit fleets. So we're doing work with the Toronto Transit Commission, Oakville Transit, Barrie Transit on transitioning them from a diesel fleet to electrical by focusing on the infrastructure. We're also working in commercial accounts as well. Like we're doing some infrastructure work at Billy Bishop Airport. We're working with Kojiko on their fleet. So that's probably a way uh, longer definition of power on, but my job, it was a very, bit of a surprise to me to come back into an organization and work as full time as I am with them. But, uh, I was doing some work. They, they suggested that I join because power on is going through this big growth spurt. And so my job right here is to help the team grow, uh, build it out to shepherd some contracts across the finish line and help develop some skill set in the team that didn't exist, uh, already. But for me personally, this comes back to your, how do you grow? Uh, it was just a really, really interesting space. I mean, I can't pick up the Globe and Mail without reading an article that's relevant to what I'm doing uh, right now. Uh, I knew I would learn a lot. It was incredibly relevant and it was pretty important. It, you know, it's a very purpose-driven organization that I'm involved in. And lastly, I mean, after telling people what to do for a few years, it gave me the opportunity to put my skill set back into action and make sure that it was still relevant and I could still do it. No, and, and you're right. Talking of testing your growth, no better way to do it. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate that insight. And I think it is definitely of interest to the audience to hear it because it is unique. Uh, Al, we're going to the final portion of our uh, podcast. And this is what we call rapid fire questions. Uh, and it's just one word answers, um, just whatever comes top of mind. And I will start with the first one, which is, what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, wine. Wine. I like it. <laughs> what word do you hate? Later. Oh, I could have guessed that. Uh, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing, if any? 
very few uh, kinesthetic. Fair enough. Uh, what is your favorite word in another language, if any? Well, these are very unusual questions, Gary. Uh, <laughs> cerveza. <laughs> well, you know, when you're in our business, there needs to be something but another language. And the last one, what is one word to describe yourself? Uh, it's hard to describe in one word, but I think you know me well enough to know focused would probably be a good word. I think it is. I think it is. Al, thank you. The, you you've been uh, great, and I think the audience will get a lot out of this podcast. Um, it's We try to keep it as distilled as possible and keep it at a length that is easy for, for listeners to, to listen to while on a commute or, or uh, uh, while exercising. But uh, with, when you have so much insight, uh, I had to hold myself back from uh, probing further in certain directions. So it just means we may have to do a, a second round of this. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, Gary. Thanks very much. Hopefully you can edit out the boring parts. <laughs>